questions from this morning or holdover questions from the last week or so. Siobhan. I need, we need a microphone. Oh, he's right there. <laughs> I'm probably remembering this wrong, but when we think of, like, descended from the order or from the order of Melchizedek, there's, is, there isn't a genealogical line for him, right? No. And so how, mm. how do we come up with that? Let's go to Hebrews. You're talking about Hebrews' comments on it. Some people have argued, good men have argued, that uh, Melchizedek is an appearance of pre-incarnate Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. It's possible. I tend not to think so, but let's look at why people might think that. And it's the description that the author of Hebrews um, gives. Let's find that. It's between Hebrews 5 or 7, somewhere in there. 7? Okay. So, actually, keep your finger in Hebrews um, 7. And we're also going to go to Genesis 15. I believe. Um, yeah, there it is. Okay. So, the point the author of Hebrews is trying to make is that Jesus and his um, advent become a new, uh, a new dispensation, a new um, administration, a new epoch in salvation history which constitutely brings a new covenant, a new priesthood, a new sacrifice, a new law, um, and a new people. All, all those things are a result of Jesus. And that every one of those is better than what came before. The word better shows up again and again in Hebrews. And so he's trying to argue these people ought not to return to the temple. There's nothing the priesthood of Levi can do for them. And you can imagine that's a hard pattern to break. If every time you... Uh, you sinned if every time you failed the Lord, you were used to going, humbling yourself, and offering a sacrifice at the temple. Um, it'd be a hard pattern to break, you know? Um, I can imagine. I mean, if you come from a Catholic background, you, you might recognize how difficult breaking some of those patterns can be if you've, if you've held them close. And these are good patterns in, in, in Scripture. Faithful Jews would, in fact, go offer sacrifices for their sins and free will offerings and thank offerings. And, and so... With, with the new covenant, that's done. No more sacrifices. I mean, that's, that's a jarring break. So the author of Hebrews is speaking to that. And, of course, we don't think of those. We're not worried. If you say Jesus is your great high priest, no one hears. Well, how on earth can he be a high priest if he's not from Levi? But that would, of course, be a question that the Jewish mind would ask. And so the author of Hebrews is answering that question. Um, verse 1 it's interesting. He picks up Melchizedek in five, and then he sets aside Melchizedek for chapter six. Um, because look at the end of five. Look at uh, um, five, ten. We'll pick it up at ten. Being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And then he has to say this. About this we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk. Not solid food. He's basically, I want to talk a lot more about Melchizedek, and you guys are probably going to have a hard time following me. And so all of chapter 6 really is this big aside. Then he comes back to it in 7. For, well, he comes back to it at the end of 6, really. Um, starting in verse 19. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. 
we have an anchor. And there's, that's the metaphor comes right from there. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus have gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So then we've picked our train of thought back up. Last scene at the end of chapter 5. Now he's brought it back up. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, or Shalom, which means, of course, peace in Hebrew, um, priest of God Most High, met Abraham from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. Then he is also the king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Now, on that basis of that passage, many good men have concluded, then I guess Melchizedek is a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's certainly possible. Uh, That would not be some awful or terrible view. I don't think that's what the author of Hebrews is saying, but good men would disagree with me, and I certainly wouldn't want to get in a fight about it. I think what he's commenting on, if you go back to Genesis, keep your finger here, but go back to Genesis 15. Um, Melchizedek only shows up in three places in the Bible. He shows up in Genesis 15. Um, Is it 15? 14? Yeah, 14, sorry. He shows up in Genesis 14. He shows up in Psalm 110, and he shows up in Hebrews 5 and 7. That's, That's it. Um, there's not a lot of uh, ink spilt on Melchizedek. And what's interesting is if you go through Genesis, every major character gets introduced with a genealogy. genealogy. Melchizedek doesn't. I think that's what the author of Hebrews means, without father or mother. He's commenting on the oddness of this man who is greater than Abraham. The author of Hebrews is say, without question, the greater blesses the lesser. So, and, and, and the lesser gives gifts and tithes to the greater. So Abraham gives gifts to Melchizedek. He tithes to him and Melchizedek blesses him. Whoever this man is, he's greater than Abraham, but strangely, no genealogy, no end of days. We're not told he lived so many days and then he died. That's the other thing you get in, in the Old Testament with major characters. He lived so many days, he fathered so many sons, and then he was gathered together with his fathers. Something like that. There's none of that in Genesis. He just shows up, and then he's gone. I think that's all the author of Hebrews is saying. Um, it, I could be wrong, but I think that's the main point. Let's, let's read the account in Genesis 14. So Abraham has rescued Lot. He's defeated these king. When you hear king, think city ruler. They're little kinglets, I think is actually the, the phrase I probably unhelpfully used in the message this morning. They're not kings of big domains. They've got some sort of defensible city or town or something, and they've got some sort of militia, they're a king. So they're kings of cities, the king of Sodom, the king of um, you know, these different towns. So 10 of these kings form a coalition. Some of these towns go and they go and they kidnap all these people, and Abraham raises up his household servants. They go and they, the Lord gives them a victory. Verse 17, after his def- return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now, by the way, when he says he's king of righteousness, um, Melech means king, ruler, authority. So that the Canaanite god Molech 
is really a generic term for a number of gods who are powers or mighty ones or something, right? Um, or like if, if the guy who keeps showing up in Genesis, Abimelech, very likely that's a title. Ab means father and Melech means ruler or king. My father, the king, very likely a title because a guy named Abimelech has dealings with Abraham. He has dealings with Isaac. He, he's, he could be the same guy. Could be. Um, or it could be a Canaanite ruler. Um, and that's a title, Ab-Melech. Well, Melchizedek is a combination of Melech and my son's name, Zedach, which means righteous or righteousness. So he's king, ruler of righteousness, Melchizedek. Melech, Zedach, Melchizedek. That would be the Hebrew. And so, again, it's just an observation on the, the word meaning. Um, and the town he's ruler of is Salem, which will later be a Jebusite stronghold that David will take over, rename Jerusalem, and make the capital of Israel. But right now, it's just interesting. He's introduced as priest of God Most High. And there's all sorts of questions around this guy because... How does he know anything about God Most High? Well, it's the same question we ask about Job. How did, where did Job get his information? But he did somehow. Or Jethro. Jethro's, Jethro's also a really... Uh, I have just a lot of question marks. Moses' father-in-law, he shows up. He's a priest of God at Midian. He gives Moses advice. God says that's good advice. He worships and offers sacrifices with Moses. So clearly, he's, he's accepted and then rather than joining himself with the covenant people of God, he goes off and does his own thing, and we have no idea what that is. It's, he's, he's an interesting character, too. In the same way, there's just a lot of unanswered questions around Jethro. There's a lot of unanswered questions around Melchizedek. Abraham somehow recognizes him for who he is or knows of who he is or something. But the king of, Sal- the king of, um, the king of Sodom comes out, and, and Abraham's got nothing for him. He won't take any reward in contrast, Melchizedek gets honored by Abraham, and he blessed him. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies from your, into your hand. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abraham, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abraham said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted up my hand to the Lord, the God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I should not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abraham rich. So Abraham, is, it's not a cold shoulder, but Abraham is not honoring the king of, of Sodom, but he honors Melchizedek. He gives a tenth of everything he owns to him. And Melchizedek blesses him. And that's it. He just disappears. No more mention of him. No more mention of him. Until David, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Psalm 110, makes this prophetic announcement of the one to whom the Lord said to my Lord, the one whom is distinguished from the Lord God and yet is still David's Lord, which goes against all Go back, go back to Hebrews 7. This goes against all the Jewish assumptions that the father is greater than the child. The author of Hebrews will make that point clearly in a moment. In chapter 7. And yet David is looking at this Davidic descendant, this Davidite, this king. He's calling him his Lord. And then the Lord said to my Lord, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And of course, Melchizedek becomes our first pattern for a priest king. Offices that are not often conjoined. Um, so that's, so let's go back and read 7. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of God, 
uh, Most High, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned the tenth part of everything. He, um, he is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. Then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, which I simply take to mean, literally, in Genesis, he doesn't get these normal things. Not, it could mean, but I don't think it means he has no birth, he has no death. Rather, there's no record of his birth or his death. There's no record of his genealogy. Um, But resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was, whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. What he's going to argue, author of Hebrews is going to argue here, is that the Melchizedekian priesthood is superior to the priesthood of Aaron. That's just going to argue. Jesus' priesthood is a better priesthood. Um, and those descendants... Okay, so verse 4. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people. That is from their brothers, though they are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. So first point in the chain, Abraham is inferior to Melchizedek. It's beyond dispute. He receives blessings from Melchizedek, therefore he's inferior. The superior blesses the inferior, beyond dispute. So that's the first point. Melchizedek's greater than Abraham. In the one case, in, in the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testifies that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. So the argument is Melchizedek's greater than Abraham, Abraham's greater than Levi. So in a sense, Levi is offering tithes to Melchizedek in Abraham's loins. Ipso facto, Melchizedek's greater than Levi. Melchizedek's priesthood is superior to Levi's priesthood. That's the, that's the nature of the argument. Now, like I said, we have so little information of, of, of Melchizedek that I will not get in an argument with someone think, no, I do think it, it. Could it be pre-incarnate Christ? It absolutely could be. Could be. And there would be nothing theologically problematic with that at all. The entire discussion is going to depend on what the author of Hebrews means in these statements, and I have not done a detailed exegesis of this. D.A. Carson, um, I've listened to a couple lectures of his on this, and he persuaded me, but like I said, I'm, I'm no expert on the topic. But that's, this is the passage where people wonder, is that Jesus in the Old Testament? Because th- this is it for talking about Melchizedek. It was Genesis 14, Psalm 110, one verse, and this. And that's, I mean, in one sense, your study of Melchizedek's easier because it's exhaustive if you hit those three passages. Because there's not 800 texts to look at. There's Genesis 14, Psalm 110, Hebrews 5 and 7. 5, 6, and 7. So that's pretty much it. Um, does that cover where you want to go? Or is there more? Is good? Okay. That was, I know it's a long, rambling answer, but he's, no, he's a fascinating character. He's a fascinating character. Um, okay, other questions? Yes, Elsa. Thanks. Um, I was just wondering, in Hebrews, when it said when the new priest, new high priest is appointed, the law change? 
Oh, you noticed that, did you? Yeah, I was, if nobody else has, I know that's not really on topic, but if you wouldn't mind covering that, thanks. Well, okay. Okay, how much for the can of worms to open? Um, There's a lot of discussion and a lot of attempts to understand the relationship of the law of Moses to the law of the believer. And one of the central issues in figuring that out and to give you some practical outworkings, ought we to observe one day in seven, the Sabbath, Saturday? Or has God moved one day in seven to Sunday, and Sunday is the new Christian Sabbath? Or is there no Sabbath at all? Uh, th- th- that would be a very practical question as you try to work out what the application of the Old Testament law to the believer is. And as you try to figure that out, you've got to then figure out how the law is held together. Now, it's common to assume... It's most common, in fact. I say this is probably the majority view, that the Ten Commandments represent the center of the Old Testament law. And certainly we could see how that would make sense. The question is, does the text of the Bible treat the Ten Commandments as the center? I'd argue, based on this passage, the priesthood is the foundation of the law. That's literally what the Hebrews says. Verse 11, Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, For under it, or on the basis of it, or upon the priesthood, the people receive the law. That is fascinating. And certainly, if you read the books of Moses, the Levitical priesthood and their their orders and and what they're told to do, and basically the temple or the tabernacle code takes up page for page, verse for verse, the single greatest chunk of the law. They get the biggest treatment out of the entire law. According to the author of Hebrews... The centerpiece, the foundation of the law of Moses is the priesthood, which then moves to, um, for under it the people had received the law, what further need would there be for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than the one named after the order of Aaron? For where there is a change of priesthood, there is necessarily a change of law as well. For one of those, and so that's, that's a huge, huge statement. Um, Because what the author of Hebrews is arguing is because the foundation of the law of Moses is the priesthood, and certainly the law of Moses spends the most attention governing, ordering, laying out, legislating the priesthood and how it will function in the worship of God and sacrifices and all of that. Um, If you're going to change the priesthood, you're going to need a new law to govern that. You're going to need a new law. Um, So... That, then, I think, is, is an explanation of what the believer's relationship to the law of Moses is. There's, there's two views. The overwhelmingly majority view uh, is not what I'm going to advocate here. And again, this is, this is an issue where good people disagree. It's not going to have a huge effect on the way you live out your life. It will, it will affect the way you treat the Sabbath. It will affect the way you view the Ten Commandments and whether or not you think it's permissible to ever depict Jesus um, because the Ten Commandments forbids imaging God. Jesus is God. I know good brothers and sisters who take that very seriously. You don't draw pictures of Jesus. Sorry. That's a Second Commandment violation. Um, good, non-Pharisaical brothers and sisters who believe that very sincerely. And it comes out of their view of the law. The, the, common, the most common view is that the Ten Commandments are the centerpiece of the law of Moses. 
And that the law of Moses, the second view, part of this view is, can rightly be divided into three categories, moral, civil, and ceremonial. Um, this, this view predates Aquinas, but Aquinas, Thomas Aquinas is the first guy to really lay it out and, and speak of it that way, um, called the tripartite, three-part view of the law. And under this view of the tripartite view of the law, um, Jesus, in his sacrificial death on the cross, does away with, fulfills, is the culmination of the ceremonial law. So we don't offer sacrifices anymore because Jesus is its, its goal and its end and its perfection and its, 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 um, its, yeah, its goal. And um, the, the setting aside of Israel and the entering into the time of the Gentiles does away with, in this view, the, uh, the civil law. So we don't, um, you know, we don't use the law of Moses to inform our civil laws. We don't put adulterers to death. Um, we'd, we'd be a more sane society if we did, but we don't. Um, we, we don't kill rebellious children. We don't, there's a lot of things we don't do um, that the law would prescribe nationally because we're not a nation who's entered into a covenant with God, which is why we need to stop citing the verse in Chronicles at Solomon's prayer of dedication as though it applies to the United States. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, that's, you, you got to read the chapter. That's the prayer of the dedication of the temple. Um, right, 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 right. Um, now, is it true that in general, where people humble themselves, God exalts the humble? Yes. So if America humbled itself, would good things happen? Oh, yeah, they would. But it has nothing to do with that verse. Um, anyway, and then the, under this view then, so the, the sacrificial portion of the law is fulfilled and therefore done away with. The civil portion is done away with with the abrogation of Israel as a, as a national people. What remains? The moral law. And what is the centerpiece of the moral law? The Ten Commandments. And so the, the overwhelming majority view on the law is that you need to go through the law of Moses and you need to pick out those moral commands which are eternal, which do bind the conscience, and the centerpiece of the moral commands is the Ten Commandments, which is why you've got good, honoring Christians. This is, Paul addresses this debate even in his letters, Romans 14. Some person observes a day, some doesn't. What do you think he's talking about? He's talking about the Sabbath, um, which also seems to indicate Paul doesn't think it's an issue of law. But he recognizes, hey, the person who honors the day of the Lord honors it to the Lord. That's good. It doesn't become legalism until I try to make you obey my conscience. When I'm obeying my conscience, that's good. When I'm like, and you should too, that's when we become enter into legalism. Um, so, so to summarize, the overwhelming majority view in the church has been um, throughout time that the law divides into three portions, civil, ceremonial, and moral. That the civil's done away with, the ceremonial's done away with, but the moral remains, and the Ten Commandments is the center of the moral law. In that, in that view, then, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is like a right teaching of the Ten Commandments, or a right teaching of the law. Jesus is setting them straight on what it always meant. Um, Jesus is maybe broadening or deepening or expanding the Ten Commandments. That, that's the class. So if you read like a, a Puritan exposition of the Ten Commandments, they're just going to go right to the, the Sermon on the Mount, and they're going to basically argue that in nuccio, in principle, in there, in all the Ten Commandments, is everything Jesus said. Jesus is not saying anything new with his ethical teaching. Nothing new. He is simply explaining what's always been there, which leads to some really um, stretching I think, stretching approaches to the Ten Commandments because the problem is, what's the second greatest commandment according to Jesus? Where does that fit into the Ten Commandments? 
it fits into not murder. Because using the logic, no, this is, this is the argument. Using the logic of do not, so if you assume this assumption that, that Jesus is not teaching anything new, he is simply teaching what's always been there. When Jesus says to look on a woman with lust is to commit adultery in your, with your heart. So we, we take the commandment against adultery and we say, okay, According to Jesus, it's not just for being adultery, it's forbidding all of the things that attend to that, all the things that lead to that. This is much bigger than simply don't sleep with your neighbor's wife. This is don't even think about it, don't entertain it in your heart. Okay, let's take the same thing with murder, not even being angry. Well, if I'm not to be angry with my neighbor, what must I do? I must love my neighbor as myself. So they, they would fit in, and you'd have these big, long Puritan expositions, like 10 weeks on each commandment, because they're trying to fit all of Jesus' ethical teaching, all of Paul's ethical teaching, all of the New Testament's ethical teaching into the Ten Commandments. Because their assumption is, if it's morally significant, it has to be there, because this is the centerpiece of the moral law. So you cannot argue that some significant moral command is not there. And reversely, you're going to have a really hard time eliminating a commandment. Which is why, even though the New Testament never calls Sunday the Sabbath, the argument for Sabbatarianism for Sunday, which the Puritans and the founders of our country largely held to, even the blue laws hold over, it, it, the, the argument is this. There has to be one day in seven. It's non-negotiable because the Ten Commandments are eternal and violent in the centerpiece of God's law. Oh, hey, look, the New Testament speaks of the Lord's Day and has Christians gathering on the first day of the week. God must have switched it. That's the argument. Now, if you want to argue, why for people who, uh, who think it's, it's, it's morally commanded to, to rest on Sunday, that's the argument in, in, in a nutshell. It's, it's ex- the possibility that there's no longer one day in seven which God's people must rest on is excluded foundationally. It's never even considered because, of course, you can't have nine commandments. It's ten, right? Um, so that's overwhelmingly, the majority view, overwhelmingly, and good good guys hold this, um, I'm not sold. I would argue, um, and, and I'm leaning heavily on D.A. Carson on this and some other guys, Doug Moo and some other people, that the New Testament shows no evidence, even the Old Testament shows no evidence of a threefold division. So Jesus can divide the law between the heavy and the light. Literally, the, Hebrew, the Greek is not what's the greatest command, what's the heaviest because the Hebrew concept of heavy, of weight, is, is glory. The commandment against um, um, uh, blasphemy is to treat God's name lightly. You treat God's name as if it's heavy, it's weighty, it's serious. That's, that's the Hebrew concept. So what's the heaviest commandment um, is literally what the Greek's asking. And so Jesus can distinguish between heavy and light commandments. There is no evidence that I can see anywhere of Jesus or the apostles treating the law as though it had a threefold division. And then I get things like James saying, whoever breaks one part of the law breaks the whole thing. What I get over and over again in the New Testament is the law is a unified, indivisible whole. There is no segmenting it out. Okay? So then the question comes, because I'm then saying we are not morally under the jurisdiction of the law of Moses in any respect. That's, that's what I'm suggesting. And which usually people freak out because then they think what I'm saying is not under any moral obligation. No, 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 no. Go to 1 Corinthians 9. Um, this is a huge topic, but you, you asked, Elsie, you picked up on my throat there. So I'll be happy to, to suggest it again. Um, I'm going to suggest to you that the Sermon on the Mount is not Jesus interpreting the Ten Commandments. Rather, I think that the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus bringing a new law. 
which is testified to by the law of Moses, which if you are familiar with the law of Moses would be recognizable as its ideal and fulfillment. The analogy I use is you, you've been making a model aircraft or a model sailboat, and then one day you're taken to, to uh, the sea and you are shown the real thing. And if you've had a good model boat, you immediately recognize that's everything my model was preparing me for. And so Jesus, because think about this, Jesus never in the Sermon on the Mount cites text as the foundation for his argument. It's always you've heard it said, but not Deuteronomy says, not Exodus says, I tell you. The, the Lexus, the notion, the center, the, it's not the Lexus, the Nexus, the source of authority in the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus Christ himself. He, he does not appeal the text for his authority. It's his own authority. I mean, think of the bold claim. You've heard it said, I'm telling you. And that I also, I think, explains some areas of Jesus' ethic in the Sermon on the Mount that don't easily line up with the book of Deuteronomy. Because Jesus forbids oath-making. Deuteronomy tells you how to make oaths. You don't swear by the gold. You swear by the Lord your God. He's your oath. Jesus, yeah, don't, I want you to not make oaths because in making oaths, what you're tacitly saying is there are times you can't trust me. I want everything you say to be to strength, right? Um, so nothing Jesus says is in conflict with the law of Moses, but it's distinct from it. The other analogy I make is this. Um, a police officer could not arrest me citing Missouri code, even though Missouri code may be identical on a given point with Iowa code. I'm not under the jurisdiction of Missouri law when I'm sitting here right now. It, we may find out that part of Iowa's law was directly copied from the law of Missouri. It doesn't make Missouri's law bad. It doesn't mean there's not a ton I can learn from it. I am not under its jurisdiction. That's what I'm suggesting. The believer's not under the jurisdiction of the law of Moses. Oh, the law of Moses, all of it is anticipating Christ showing up. All of it is anticipating what he's bringing. We can, it can inform us in all sorts of ways. But that way you don't have to go... because. And we're getting somewhere. We are going to get somewhere in a moment. Here's, here's what first brought me upon this. I was doing premarital counseling with Jacob Moore out in California. And Jacob asked me um, about one of the laws in the Old Testament that gets repeated a couple times. How do I say this politely? The Old Testament law forbids a man knowing his wife during certain times of the month. And his question was just practical. Is that a binding ethical command? And I had assumed, just assumed up to that point, um, the threefold division. That's just what I, I, I came out of that. And I'm sitting there going, I don't see anything fundamentally ethical about it. I mean, would you put it in the sacrificial category because it deals with blood? But, but then you read about where it's placed in Leviticus, and it's right next to commands against adultery, incest, and bestiality. So it looks like it's moral in its context. And I really had no answer. And what I realized is a lot of tough cases where it doesn't neatly divide, like, oh, we're entering a moral section, and oh, now we're entering a civil section. It's not nearly as cut and dry as that. And there are a lot of difficult cases. And what hermeneutic and which apostle or Jesus do we look to to find the key to figure out which commands of the most law of Moses are moral, which commands are not moral, they're purely civil? Is it as simple and cut and dry as that? Surely there's some morality to loving your neighbor by putting a parapet around the roof of your house so he doesn't fall off. Yet most people would see that as civil. Yet surely I see something about caring for protecting your neighbor in that. That's ethical, right? Um, I don't, so I just came to see it's not nearly as cut and dry as moral, ceremonial, civil. Now let's go to 1 Corinthians 9. Um, and if you're not fully tracking this, that's, that's fine. This is a heavy conversation, and I'm not in any way expecting or thinking I'm going to persuade people at most 
some of you might realize, okay, there's something to study, something to look into. You're, you should not let me or anyone persuade you on this in one 20-minute discussion. This is a big topic I've been looking into for years. All I want to do is expose you, okay, there is some discussion, there is some debate. Not everyone's on the same page on this. We're largely going to live our lives and love our neighbor the same way. We might observe a day differently. We might have different views on imaging Jesus I'm okay with a Jesus Storybook Bible that has a picture of him. I understand why good brothers and sisters aren't, right? Because they're taking the Ten Commandments seriously. If the Ten Commandments are morally binding, no images. That's clear as day in the Ten Commandments. But that's clearly a metaphor, but he's not metaphorically human. He's really human. Okay, 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 Lee. Okay. No, no, Lee, but if the, if the second commandment, if, if the commandment against imaging is, is active and on, it's got to mean something. Now, I think the answer isn't, we won't think through that. I think the answer is, that doesn't bind us, that doesn't govern us. That, but here's, here's where I get this from. Because then the, what I get called then is an antinomian, anti-law. Namos means law, so antinomian against the law. You're uh, advocating antinomian. Nope, I don't think so. Paul gives us another category, Okay. Um, so 1 Corinthians 9, verse 19. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a slave to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew. Now that's interesting, because isn't Paul a Jew? What do you mean you become as a Jew? Paul, you are a Jew. To the Jews, I become as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I become as one under the law, though myself not being under the law. You can read about that in Acts 19, where Paul shaves his head and takes a ceremonial vow and circumcises Timothy before taking him into the temple. Timothy had a lot of confidence in Paul, I'll tell you that. Um, To those under the law, I became as one under the law. And get this, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside of the law of God, but under the law of Christ. So we'd be tempted to think there's two options. Either you are under the law of Moses, or you're without law. Either you're a Jew or you're a Gentile. And Paul says, well, to the Jews I become a Jew, to the Gentile I become a Gentile. To those under law I become as one under the law. To those without law I become like that too. He's got a third position in there. He's a Christian. He's, he's, he's not a Jew. Are you a Jew? Are you a Greek? Paul would say, I'm a Christian. I'll become as a Jew to Jews. I'll become as a Gentile to Gentiles. And he says, he insists, he's not without a principle of law that governs him. It's not the law of Moses. It's the law of Christ. So, so I would understand the moral teaching of Jesus to be Jesus laying out his ethic at the Sermon on the Mount for those who would follow me to those who have trusted in me to those who are looking to me here's my ethic and what I demand of you and you will see that the prophets and the law testify to it this is the highest ideal the Mosaic law could reach Mosaic law made oath making and giving your word a serious deal I'm telling you everything you say needs to be an oath strength do you see how there's a perfect line of continuity here you see how it's perfectly in keeping with and in, and in no way doing damage to, yet distinct from, the law of Moses. So Paul can say, I'm not under the law of Moses. I'm happy to act as one under the law. I'll shave my head and I'll circumcise Timothy and I'll not eat ham. But, but not because I'm under the law, 
But don't mistake me. It's not as though I'm without law. I'm just under the law of Christ, not the law of Moses. So that would be the other approach, the other option. Um, this is a huge issue. I'm happy to move on. But any questions before I go any further? Um, if you want to go further, I would, I'll be happy to photocopy for you. There's a really helpful book, um, Essays in Honor of Charles Feinberg's uh, Systems of Continuity and Discontinuity, where in a very peaceful and helpful way, good, godly Christian men on both sides of this issue write Essays, chapter-long essays, for and against on both sides of key issues. And there's Doug Moo writes one. It's the two chapters. Doug Moo's chapter, The Law of Moses or The Law of Christ. And then I forget the gentleman's name who writes the other side, The Law of Moses and. You're seeing them as the same thing, The Law of Christ. And you would get two well-written, well-reasoned, peaceable, not condemning and calling each other heretics, explanations of these two things a little better, a little deeper than I can do in 15 minutes. If you're interested in that, I'd be happy to uh, photocopy that for you or get that to you. Yes, I can, Renee. I'll... Yeah! Mandy, if you're listening, you know what you got to do. No, I'll, I'll get five or six copies of that, and if you want it, and I can make some more, happy to. Like I said, I don't expect everyone to be really interested in this, but I find it... It doesn't affect as much what you're going to do, except for the Sabbath issue and images. But it does affect how you read your Bible a lot, how you see the Bible hanging together a lot. Um, And it does give you some answer when people come up to you and say, well, you know, you you have a problem with homosexuality or whatever. Well, do you wear mixed garments? You got to have an answer for why some of these things you do and some of these things you don't do. And so everybody's got to come up with some explanation. And one explanation is law for fabrics is ceremonial, so it's done, but this is moral and it stays. That's one answer. I'm suggesting a different answer. But everyone's got to deal with this at some level because we're not going up to Jerusalem three times a year, right? So um, we got five minutes left. Any further questions on this? Matthew. Oh, dear. No, Mike, Mike Matthew, there's about six people who listen to the podcast, and they want to know what you have to say. Okay. Um, my question is uh, kind of online with your question is Jesus never claims the order of Melchizedek. It's applied to him posthumously. Um, how then is he one? If he never claims one, he never really acts as one. What she was talking about with the lineage, I think that's what she was kind of getting that is it's not ever made until after he's dead. So Anyways. it's kind of just like dead, resurrected in, in heaven. I mean, um, right. So how, if he's never acting in that office realistically in his earthly ministry, um, it's just like, oh, he is, because this one verse in Psalm 10, Psalm 110 says so. How does that really, practically, how does that function? Well, that's, that's partly why we went to Hebrews so much, and partly why I want to go to Ephesians in the fall. The Gospels tell us what happened. I mentioned this earlier in the message today. The Gospels tell us what happened, but most of the epistles talk about the so what. So I hope this morning I at least show Jesus functioning in a priestly way when he's blessing his disciples, when he's interceding and praying for them, when he's talking about himself being a sacrifice that's being offered, that we can see Jesus is functioning like in a priestly way, even as he cleanses lepers and they don't contaminate him. Um, it certainly takes the author of Hebrews to help us think through and draw the implications of that. And certainly I don't think... No, no, we would, because what's the number one most quoted psalm in the New Testament? Psalm 110. Jesus brings it up to the Sadducees in, in Luke 20, uh, if, where he cites it. So it's clear Jesus sees himself as the Lord who said, right? 
Well, you can't read Psalm 110.1 and not eventually get to verse 4. So even though Jesus never develops verse 4 of Psalm 110, he clearly, I'm Psalm 110. Well, the author of Hebrews comes along and says, you guys realize that the, Psalm 110 also says he's a priest. Let's think and talk about that. And it's according to the order of Melchizedek. So that is supplied in the Old Testament. Now, the author of Hebrews says all of the thinking and chewing and unpacking of what that means. But we do have, in principle, the basic information present. Jesus is the one spoken of in Psalm 110. The one spoken of in Psalm 110 is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now, that's all we're given, and then the Gospels will show Jesus acting in priestly ways. The other Gospels do as well. Certainly, Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17, interceding for his disciples, interceding for the world. We see him functioning in a priestly way there. The other Gospels will shed light to Jesus functioning like a priest. I just, in my summary of Luke, trying to show Luke's presentation of that. But you're absolutely right. It's the author of Hebrews who really alone is interested in developing that theme. Paul never goes there. Um, John does um, in first in no in Revelation one he talks about Jesus making us a kingdom of priests to his God, um, but but Peter really doesn't develop that at all. It's, but it is there. You can't just say we wouldn't have it without Hebrews. Without Hebrews, all we'd know is I guess in some sense Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek because of Psalm one hundred and ten, and we'd have a lot of discussion over what on earth that meant. But we. Don't need Hebrews to make that conclusion. Psalm 110 gives us that conclusion validly. Hebrews then says, let's think about that for a bit. Fair enough. But it doesn't entirely depend on Hebrews, posthumously. But the very fact of Jesus saying, I'm Psalm 110, he is implicitly saying, I'm also a Melchizedekian priest. He has to be saying that. These are people who've memorized all this stuff. So he's identifying himself as Psalm 110.1. He has to also be identifying himself as Psalm 110.4. He has to. So um, it's not, I would argue it's not entirely posthumous, even though Jesus never really makes much of that, um, which is absolutely a fair enough observation. We're at time, folks. I'll be happy to stick around for a few minutes and talk any more questions you have, but I don't want to keep you longer than, you, uh, than, than this class lasts. So uh, let's uh, break, and we'll see you all next week. Please be in prayer for the Ludwigs. Please. Thank you. <laughs>